Okay, welcome to another episode of Business School. My name is Phineas Ellis. I am the co-founder of Stereotype Studio, a podcast production company. And I'm Stephen Cool, the co-founder and CEO of Burrow, a direct-to-consumer furniture brand. This podcast is a show where we explore all the glamorous and sometimes scandalous aspects of consumer startup culture. Today's episode is going to be a little different than what we've done thus far. I'm really excited about it. We're going to start layering in slightly new formats as the show evolves. Today, we are going to have on an entrepreneur who is at the very beginning of his journey. He has literally just launched his business under a year ago now. And we're going to break down the business model. We're going to break down his vision for the business. And then we're going to have basically a roundtable discussion, brainstorming session about the business where he's going to be able to ask questions and we're going to kind of bat around ideas and give feedback. So before we start the show today, uh, we want to try something new. We are starting to get questions from listeners. And so we want to start answering some of those questions live on the show at the beginning of each show. Absolutely. So we're really excited to continue to evolve this show week after week. And one of the things that we are going to start incorporating is responding to questions every so often from you all. This can be topics, specific questions on business or startups, or just something that you heard and you want our take on. The Instagram handle is bschoolpodcast, and it's a private Instagram account, so only join if you're interested in actually asking questions, and uh, hopefully we can create some level of dialogue inside of that Instagram account. So we got a question from an entrepreneur who is in the furniture space. Two questions. The first is, what are your takes on the king versus rich presented by Noah Wasserman in Harvard Business Review? Okay, so the king versus rich dilemma is basically, do you want to be the king of your business, meaning you own as much of the business as possible? Or do you want to be rich, meaning you're willing to own a smaller percent and have less control? Um, but make more money in the long run. And like most answers to most questions, it's in the real world. It's It kind of depends. You don't control it as much as you think you do. You kind of marginally control your situation. Some businesses just need a lot more capital to start, right? If you're gonna if you're gonna build a, a machine that connects to your phone and you can scan someone's brain for cancer, my guess is you're gonna need to raise about a hundred million dollars before you can even kick off the development of that project. And so you have to give up a big portion of the business to investors early on. That's a super extreme scenario, right? If you're starting a services business, you don't actually have to, like you're you're giving up your time in exchange for money. You have like next to no costs. You don't actually have to raise money in order to get the business off the ground. And so you kind of just have to figure out where you fall in that spectrum and then also figure out how big of a business you, you realistically can build. If you have a vision and you're incredibly confident in it and you start to gain momentum um, and you're attracting a lot of excitement from others in the in, in the community around your business um, and you think, hey, we can build a multi-billion dollar business, then maybe you do want to raise a lot of money to accelerate the growth of, of your company. And in that scenario, it's like, you know, you're hoping to own 10% of a company that's worth billions of dollars. That's a lot of money for you. But you might get fired along the way by investors. You don't control the board. Maybe the vision doesn't play out exactly as you as you want it to. And so you're rich, but you're not in control of your destiny um, as time goes on. And then the flip side is you resist raising money. It forces you to build a probably a more capital efficient early. You develop develop uh, tighter business practices 
and you don't need a massive outcome to make a decent amount of money. Plus, you can see your vision through um, the entire way. And so it just kind of depends on what, what your priorities are um, over time. So it depends. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's interesting. We talked about this a bit on the first episode of the pod, growth versus profitability. You know, part of it is what kind of company you want to run. But a bigger part of it to the point you made is it's dictated by your circumstance how much your product takes off, what's your growth rate, are investors even willing to give you lots of money? Now, to that point, quick quick follow-up for you, Stephen. Do you feel like you made a choice to run a company like this? Like, were you? did you think about this dilemma early on is a better question, and where do you think you fall in this category? We did, and it's all relative. So for us, we were compared very early on when we started the company. When we were going through Y Combinator, we were called the Casper for Couches. And so Casper was a very relevant data point. One of their competitors, Tough to Needle, had raised next to no money. It was only friends and family. You know, Casper is now a public business. Tough to Needle sold for a couple hundred million dollars a lot sooner, but the owners owned, I think, nearly 100% of that business. And so we always felt like we wanted to do something in the middle. Yeah. And so, yes, we've raised a decent amount of money, but compared to a lot of consumer startups, we've raised a very small amount of money. Right. So you've been able to benefit and grow quickly because of your ability to yeah have a viral have a sort of a virality to your business early on and therefore attract investors and outside capital and you have that fuel your growth but you're still growing at a healthy rate you could have taken on more money given up more of your business and maybe grown faster but you made very distinct decisions to be what you are today. Yeah, and we also knew we didn't want to rely on capital to run the company as quickly as possible. We wanted to get profitable, um, which we've recently been able to achieve. And so it's really nice not being reliant on outside capital because then you become dependent on it. And if you're burning too much money, you have to raise more to get to the next level. And we knew we didn't want to do that. And we, and we felt pretty confident that we could build a really large business um, without relying on capital permanently. Yeah, look, and for me, I'm on the opposite end of the spectrum. I'm growing a service-based business. We do podcast production for clients, right? I'm a co-host of this show, yes, and I have my own podcast. But the business is we work with people who pay us to produce their podcasts. And then with some shows, we grow from the ground up and we own the IP. And then we option that IP to larger larger organizations. And that's essentially the business model. This business model, in my opinion, I have no interest in outside capital probably ever because it just simply doesn't make sense. So I agree that it's very dependent on what you want and your circumstance. Okay, question two. By far the biggest difficulty in growing my business and now attracting investors is my lack of team. How to attract quality, high-level hires in the early stages and with limited resources, especially now that traditional networking has nearly vanished. There seems to be a catch-22 of needing a good team to attract investors, yet having limited capital to hire that team. Okay, I have a hot take on this question, and then I'll let Steven jump in. My take is that if you're an entrepreneur, my advice is to get your business as far as you possibly can on your own, and then one of two things will happen. You will either arrive at a place where the business is appealing to investors, or you won't. And if you haven't, in my opinion, it just means that you haven't pushed long enough and hard enough to get to the point where the product market fit is there, and you have enough traction where investors are going to want to put in. So to me... I think you should resist on hiring somebody up until the point where you feel like there is a lot that you can give that person and they can have a significant impact on your business. 
and you can hand them the reins to something that they can really run with. And in my opinion, when you're at that point, I think you're really attractive to a new hire. I think that's a really exciting thing to take the reins of a business that's doing well, where the founder's taken as far as they can. And now a really qualified new hire can get a chunk of equity and come aboard and then take your business to the next level. That's appealing to a really qualified first employee. I just think you probably haven't gotten to the point where you've maximized the amount you can do on your own. Yeah, I completely agree with that. You're spot on. And I'll add that you should never do anything that you think is what investors want. What investors want is the best business possible. They want the business that's growing as fast as possible, most profitably, which means you need to maximize revenue and minimize costs. Adding headcount because you think they're looking for the right team doesn't make sense to me. I think you should do whatever you think is in the best interest of your business. If your business needs a co-founder or an, an expert in some function, you should hire that person. If you think that's what you need in order to grow, then do it. But I wouldn't make the decision based on what you think investors want. Great point. Okay, let's get into the episode. This is something that you and I both do all the time with people. Absolutely. New entrepreneurs that want advice and I think the best way that these things go and the best way to give advice to people is to, number one, ask counter questions. Number two, talk about our own experiences and then kind of let you interpret it for yourself. So hopefully, you know, it doesn't really matter who's asking the questions in these types of episodes because the, the advice should be somewhat applicable because I'm not going to give direct advice. You're not going to give direct advice, like specific advice. It's going to be, well, here's how I've handled it or here's how I would handle it. You know, how do we tailor this to you? What's fun about this is that we get to actually talk to an entrepreneur who is in the thick of actually figuring out the first questions. I think we spend so much time on this show and just in general talking about companies that are startups, in quotes, but are doing $2 million, five, 10, 20, 50 million dollars in revenue. And so they're really past that phase of being a startup. And so Welcome to the show, Alex Bertman. You are the founder and CEO of Field Tiles, and I'm going to let you describe the business to the audience, and then we'll get into it. Sure. Thank you guys uh, both for having me. I think it's a great opportunity. So yeah, I'm super excited to be here and super excited to just chat with you guys. So like Phineas said, I run a business called Field Tiles, and we are a direct-to-consumer business that sells ceramic tile. So um, we import the tiles from uh, various manufacturers around the world. We also sell them internationally, but our core business is sort of focused on the U.S. currently. And we are trying to simplify the process of ordering ceramic tiles online. So, you know, in the past, ceramic tiles and maybe sort of building materials in general, it's a bit of a traditional type of business model. And there hasn't been a lot of technological upgrades in that industry for a long time. So through my experience, which is really rooted in kind of architecture, and I have a background in hospitality design, I saw the sort of the need for the industry to kind of push forward and make it easier for people like myself, who purchase a lot of materials or who specify tiles or how do we push this into the future? Like every other industry, how do we make it so that it's just much more intuitive, much more easy, a better experience for customers, a better experience for people in the industry to purchase these materials. From a customer's perspective, how did it used to work and how does it work with you? 
So in a traditional kind of uh, experience for, let's say, let's just go with a consumer, right? They're they're renovating their their house or even smaller than that, maybe they're renovating their kitchen. Typically, they would go two different ways, really. Maybe they're experienced enough to understand they want to bring on an architect or an interior designer to help them design their kitchen. And that architect or designer would then decide what type of materials they wanted to use in the space, tile being generally being one of them on the kitchen backsplash or maybe on the kitchen countertop. And once they've agreed, okay, the owner says, oh yeah, I love that. Let's proceed with, you know, that white tile or blue tile or whatever it is. Then uh, they would work with the contractor and that contractor would buy the tile. A lot of the times the contractor would come back to the owner and say, this tile is really expensive. Do you want to spend that much money? I have some alternatives for you. So that's pretty typical. Then it puts the owner in the position of saying, oh, well, I fell in love with this tile or this material, but now it sounds like I can't afford it. So yeah, we can go with something else. So they end up sort of compromising things. So, and you never really understand, it's not super transparent. So you don't actually understand the true cost of what that actual material ends up being. Contractor also marks it up. The interior designer might get a cut if it's coming from a certain supplier, things like that. So there's some things that are less transparent than what you would wish they were. The other alternative is that the owner actually says, I'm just going to buy the tile myself. But how do they find that? Finding that tile is actually quite difficult or finding that material to go and source that at a showroom or a kitchen cabinet manufacturer or wherever they're going to end up going. It's a little bit technical for them, so it can feel a little bit overwhelming. And then again, you feel you don't really have anything to compare it back to, so you're not quite sure if you're getting a good deal or not, right? So what we're trying to do is just be extremely transparent on the website by giving some information to the consumer about this is the process, this is how it's made, this is where it's coming from, this is how long it takes to make, and then here's sort of the breakdown of the pricing. And I think once you understand what goes into making the tiles and making the materials justifies the price behind them too. And we we make it very simple for the consumer then to intuitively kind of order it online like they would any other e-commerce store. And is it always that exact towel or do you run into issues where that one's not available? There's similar ones. Well, so we make everything to order. So we don't stock anything. We stock all of our samples. So generally you're gonna order samples before you buy a big purchase, like all the kitchen tile for your backsplash or for your bathroom or whatever, because it can, you know, it can be hundreds or thousands of dollars worth of material. So you wanna see it in person, see it in your house, see what it looks like, feel it. Kind of hard to replace. You can't just return it. Yeah, return it. Yeah. We don't accept returns because once we start the process, you we're making a, a custom material for you. So before we jump into more, I want to say a few things. Alex runs the business by himself. Full disclosure, he and I are already working together on some stuff, but he works on it by himself. He's very early in the process and the concept is flushed out, but the business model and the brand and the identity and the position and how the company is going to start to scale and operate at scale is very much in process, like it would be for any entrepreneur at this point, right? He has the product on lock. The product is great. The positioning is in process. So it's it's this really interesting stage of the business where the nuts and bolts are in place. And uh, anyway, I think it's a really pivotal moment for the business and really exciting because you have traction. People are making orders and it's starting to grow. And now it's like, what puzzle pieces need to be in place in order to make that happen? Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, it is. I mean, we, uh, well, I say, I always say we, but it's just me. So yeah, I started building the business in early 2019. We went live in 
the end of 2019. So it was basically 10 months of sort of building the website, finding the right supplier, making those agreements, getting the supply chain in place. And then we went live in October of 2019 as sort of a beta test. At that point, I was basically giving everything away for free in terms of samples, just trying to get it in the hands of anybody that would show up on the website. I wasn't doing any advertising. I look at it like we've been sort of publicly out there for since May. So I guess five or six months at this point. And now, just now, the last two months, really, I'm starting to see some traction. There's orders coming through and there's, you know, we're starting to generate some revenue. Uh, I think it'd be great to try to pack this next 15 or 20 minutes with adding value to your business and us giving you some support. So I know you have maybe some questions prepared, and I think we should just float those questions out there and then bat them around a bit. Sure. Yeah. No, I wrote down a couple of questions. I think top of mind right now is sort of, you know, I'm going through this uh, exercise of sorts where I'm trying to understand better my brand positioning and where I should sit in the market. You know, it's a fairly typical kind of business model. It's essentially a distribution business model where I buy wholesale and then I resell for a markup. Right. And I have two streams of revenue, one being wholesale to contract and then to consumer. So I've already adjusted my pricing on my product a number of times, sometimes out of just like my own sort of fear that it's too high and I didn't know what the customers were going to react to or not, you know, or somebody reacted poorly to it. And then I was like, oh, no, I need to adjust it right now. But I think my question now really is that I'm starting to get orders and I'm starting to get enough information and data to really analyze what the pricing could be or should be the thought of like sort of the cost of the product versus the brand positioning and how those two work together because when i originally started the brand i thought i want to do something that's really affordable for everybody but the reality is i i can't do that because i don't have enough volume at this point so the high pricing is considered on the higher end and so now it's like do i position my brand as a luxury brand because that's the price point that we have to sell it at, you know, and, and how do you navigate eventually either moving towards something that's more democratic and, and affordable, or do you just sort of ride that wave and just go with something that's, you know, premium type of product? So I think you shouldn't feel stuck in one, any one type of price. You can test out pricing. At Burrow, we tested pricing quite a bit on our first product, the Core Sofa. And it fluctuated based on where it was made, the materials that it was made out of, and customers' willingness to pay. And you kind of get a feel for it over time of like, what is your true all-in cost to source and deliver and service customers, right? Like you should test a couple of different strategies there. In terms of premium versus low cost, like you need to figure out what what you want to be to customers. What I heard you describe in the beginning was you want to be super convenient. You're sending them samples. It's custom made for them. It is always going to be in stock. There is no like, we're not switching things on you. You're giving them transparency as to where it's made. All of that is valuable. You're promising a certain experience and you're delivering that to customers. And so to me, that's a convenience play and it's a luxury experience. It has nothing to do with the product. The product, you talk about a luxury business, 
the product itself has to be luxury for it to be a luxury product. Luxury meaning it's the high end of whatever product or service you're offering. I don't know the answer to that. I think you should just charge appropriately. I think you should, I don't know what the right margin structure should be, but you should make a, a healthy enough margin depending on, you know, whatever the cost it is to make that material. But then you should charge a, an appropriate markup for the level of convenience that you're providing to customers, which means it should more than cover your shipping samples. It should more than cover the cost of acquiring customers that should more than co- you know cover everything. Yeah, in some ways I think pulling the two apart is actually what you need to do in that there is just the function of the business, right? The margin that you need to have in order to pay for all the stuff that you need to do to deliver the product to the customer and to Steven's point fulfill the promise that you've made on quality and experience. However, you also need to separately make a decision of whether or not you want to be a CEO of a luxury brand and you want to be perceived as luxury, and then you need to marry those two together, right? Because really, if it's a convenience play, that doesn't necessarily mean it's not luxury. That doesn't necessarily mean it's not premium and vice versa. I I think it's more about like, what kind of business do you want to run? And then what are the realities of the margin that you need to have? And then you put those two together after the fact. And what do your customers want too? Because like if who you're serving is like, what are their demographics? Are they Have their higher earners that are willing to pay more for a more convenient premium experience and they're getting a very high quality tile, then yeah, you should position the brand more that way. If, if it's a customer that is a little bit less wealthy and you do want to be the low cost player then you, you need to take a hard look at all your everything that goes into your cost structure because even though you want to provide the value of a luxury brand at a budget brand price, that's never a winning strategy. Right, like is Burrow a luxury brand? Burrow is, yeah, it's, it, it is a luxury brand, but it also depends on who you're talking to. Like is it as high end as, you know, design within reach or restoration hardware? No, it's not, but it's kind of on par with, I would say, the West Elm, CB2, et cetera. Um, which is which is a luxury brand. What's interesting to me about that is it's what you're saying is from an identity perspective. We're, sell- we're selling Volvos. We're not selling Ferraris. Exactly, right? You're not overpricing. And what luxury brands so often do, right, is they leverage the brand name for perceived additional value, wherein what Burrow's doing is they're saying, here is the value play. Here is the value proposition first. And then also we have a really accessible, clean brand that makes sense Everything about Burrow, in my opinion, is built towards adding value to the customer. Whereas a luxury brand, that's not necessarily the case. One of the big value propositions of a luxury brand is perceived prestige and the association with that brand identity. So again, I think it's important to kind of pull those two apart and recognize kind of what you want and what the market wants. I guess to Stephen's point, yeah, those are three things. What your customers want and what fits in the market, what you want, and then the realities of your business. A big theme with a lot of direct-to-consumer brands who share the same customer, which is why you see a lot of the same types of brands, business models, et cetera, brand positioning, um, is because they share the same customers. And it's a product that is like entry-level luxury with a best-in-class experience that may even surpass luxury, like traditional luxury brands in terms of how convenient it is to the customer. Right. Is technology and innovation premium or luxury? What we're finding is we're now putting a premium on ease, clarity, understanding, like true value that's being passed to the customer in their experience and their journey over brand identity, right? Over brand. And this is for a different episode, but 
the brand is wrapped up in the business model. Part of being a direct consumer company, part of having a website that's really accessible and makes sense, and the messaging is clear, and you have great customer experience. That's all part of your brand identity and your quote unquote luxury experience. And so I just think what happens in luxury is just quite a bit different today than what it was. I think it's going to continue to blend. The last thing I'll say about pricing is I do imagine because yours is project-based, there's an element of there's probably some wiggle room to close the deal. And so I wouldn't be afraid of charging a little bit more if in the 25th hour you can say, if they're on the fence, you have that as, I wouldn't jump to it right away, but you have that in your back pocket to be like, um, hey, like for your first time, I can give you 10% off. And when in reality, 10% less than your asking price might have been a perfectly fine price anyways that you were willing to test out. And then if you find that you always have to use that with customers, test out just charging that price. And then you may find that they still want the 10% off, so you're better off charging more to always give them the 10% off to give them the perceived additional value, right? There's all these kind of things that you can kind of test out and prove over time. So in that same sort of vein, how many times are you changing your business model? Like at the beginning, is it just sort of you have an idea of what it's going to be and then for the next... Changing your price or your business model? Both. I mean, it being your, your price in order to adjust to get the margins that you're trying to achieve. But within that, you're also changing the fundamentals of the business model too. Like, am I including shipping in the price of the product or am I charging separately for that? Or, you know, there's, there's different perceived values with the way you can approach that. And yeah, there are, there are different ways you can structure that. So we offer free shipping. It does cost money to ship a sofa or, and all our furniture. I think that's kind of become table stakes in our industry and a lot of direct consumer brands. I don't know that it has to be. I think you have to lean into whatever story makes sense to the customer. Hearing about your model, I would venture to say that it's different every single time that you place an order, if it depending on where it's coming from and who it's going to, there is going to be a it could be a wide range of how much it costs. Now, you could bake it in, take an average price and bake it in. You could give an estimated amount and if you're going to do an estimated amount that will be confirmed upon the final quote, I would make that estimated amount the very high end of the spectrum because you want people to be willing to pay it, and especially if you're separating it from the price. The way people are perceive the price of goods and services is like you see the sticker price. If you see the shipping price later when they're cross comparing products, they're not including the shipping price in that. Now, if you're in an industry where you expect to have free shipping that could kill the sale if you're like i thought shipping was going to be included this entire time and now your time is charged okay that's not great but if it if if it's a possibility it's reasonable in the consumer's mind that shipping and other charges may be extra especially if you tell them that up front um, then it's not a shock to them and when they're in their comparison shopping your tiles versus others they're just comparing the base price i'm guessing here but like i would venture to say that you have the ability to separate the two and because they're separate, why not go on the high end for the estimated shipping and logistics costs that you're going to charge them later on? And then when the actual cost comes in, how much trust and like extra value does that, it builds trust with them. And then how much value does that bring to the customer? And you're like, oh, I told you it cost $150 to ship it. It's actually going to be 133. It's not that much money, but then they're like, wow, that was amazing. And this person's not ripping me off. Right. So then they're really excited 
and they're going to tell their friends about it, which is another thing like that's free marketing for you is especially on these types of project based businesses and services based businesses, your lifeblood is people telling other people about the project. And it's such an emotional thing for them, right? They're redoing their kitchen or their bathroom or their entire house. It's a really stressful process. If you were the one piece in the puzzle that was super easy and you came in under budget, that's a huge win. That's going to sell itself 10 times over versus making that extra 17 bucks. Again, I'm making up those numbers. but It's a great point though, like how important surprise and delight is early, early on in a business like this so that you get some word of mouth marketing. Word of mouth marketing, even for Burrow and for a lot of brands that really took off was probably critical more so than we even realized in the early stage. We all think it's PR articles and funding announcements and investment dollars and great product. And it's all those things too. But if you supply a great product and an experience that they've never really had before or that they weren't expecting, they're going to tell people about it. So, okay. So I want to talk like a little bit about advertising, online advertising. Sure. Which I, I haven't jumped into yet, but I think it could be something that I want to get into pretty soon, actually, to help just expand the word, get the word out there, especially like without trade shows going on right now, I think that might be something that's really crucial for me to continue to scale. So I'm just curious about like when you think the right time is to start online advertising, you know, has that been beneficial? Uh, which platforms seem like they're the right ones? Instagram obviously is good. I'm interested in Pinterest and things like that too. So Pinterest is great. It's kind of a newer platform for advertising, meaning the actual algorithms on the back end of the model is still kind of being fleshed out like Facebook and Google I would say are super efficient in terms of supply and demand Pinterest is getting there and when to advertise um, I think if demand is an issue advertise if supply is an issue pull back on marketing a little bit on paid marketing and I would hire somebody to do digital marketing I would think search would be huge for your business you can spend a very small amount of money and I mean like thousands of dollars to get uh, your website optimized for search traffic. And so you'll just for free be driving a lot more traffic to your website. And there is plenty of uh, consultants you can hire for fairly cheap and help you if there's any sort of like press at all that you can get or connections to trade shows or whatever, any links to your site, that stuff helps big time. And then in terms of actual advertising, hire, hire an agency. There's a bunch of these smaller agencies Figuring out how to advertise on Facebook and Google is a full-time job if you have any sort of background in it. And so if you don't have a background in it, you won't be able to do it effectively and you'll be wasting all your time. You don't want to spend your hours of the day figuring out how Facebook works. You want to spend your, your hours in the day building your company. So I was curious about um, your thoughts on scaling uh, a business without bringing on investment. So I own the company 100%. I've put in my own money to build this thing. And three months ago, I was like, I need, I don't know what I'm going to do because I don't have any more money to put into it, right? So I was thinking maybe now's the time I should look for an investor or a partner with somebody or do something. And then, you know, I figured it out and things kept sort of rolling. But I'm wondering, you know, what are your thoughts on building a big business without ever taking on any investment or on the flip side, like, is it worth bringing in an investor and actually being able to scale a little bit faster with that extra capital? You should take on extra money if you, outside money, if, if it can do one of two things or both. Um, one is there are things that you need to spend money on to make your business grow to the next level or just operate at all that you don't have the money to do on your own. And so that could be 
oh, we need to expand our production capacity. And so we don't have the money to do that. And I can't physically increase my, you know, the amount that I can produce unless I spend this money. So I need to raise money to get that next level. It's a very like step function kind of growth uh, way of thinking about it. The other way is like, I could grow faster with money because I can hire out a bigger team. I can spend more on marketing, et cetera. The struggle with that one is the proof that you could actually put that money to work in the way that you think it will work is not necessarily there. And, and also like a lot of times investors want you to prove that you can grow without money prior to them ever giving you money. I think there's this big misnomer in startups and in venture capital that you have an idea, people give you a check, and then you go prove out the idea. It's really the opposite. You prove it out and then they give you money for that. You're kind of rewarded for your last, your last stage of growth. And so you have to prove you can do a lot with a little if you do want money. And the reason why is because they want proof that whatever you can get done without money, you can do 10 times more of with money. And so you should make sure that you are fully confident that if you were to raise outside capital, you would be able to put it to work in a way that is really efficient. Because what you don't want to do is take on outside capital and then be like, oh, I'm just sitting on this money. I don't really know how to spend it. Or even worse, you spend it and nothing really changes that much in your business. So if I were to feel like it was important to bring on investment like how do you even go about looking for an investor or trying to raise capital i i don't have a background in business or anything like that it's very much design focused i I feel very much in line with what you're talking about where my thought was always i want to make this business profitable on my own and i want to prove that you know we can generate money and then once we feel like we need more capital you know for growth for marketing for just getting the word out there maybe that's an opportunity to bring on an investor. I wouldn't even know how to reach out to somebody to do something like that. Um, So there's a lot of new platforms out there that are either equity crowdfunding, where you can actually raise money in your business or for your business, like for equity in the business um, from regular people. And you can promote that on your website. You can also just do a crowdfunding platform. I mean, you have a physical product. You could do an Indiegogo or Kickstarter campaign to sell your product. And they do take a percentage of that, but like you can do that to spread awareness and to get the business going. But you also gotta remember fundraising. If you actually are going out, networking, meeting investors, trying to get money from them, that is almost a full-time job. So if you are the only person working on your business and you don't need money to continue to prove it out and and build the business, I wouldn't do it. It, it, Because you will find that you're spending not enough time on your business and a lot of time hearing a lot of no's because that's what fundraising is, is pitching a bunch of people on your everything you've been pouring your life into for the last you know year or so. And most people say no. And so it's just like super exhausting and draining your turnaround and be like, I wasn't even working on the company. And I don't know, the, the number one thing that people do invest in is companies that are working well. And so if you can figure out how to keep pushing the business forward, get to the point where you're like, I'm bursting at the seams. I absolutely need capital to get to the next level. Not like, oh, I wonder if I could grow faster if I had outside capital. Don't raise money. You should only do it when you're like, oh man, I like I, I know I need more money. Like I have a friend of mine who's building a, a dog food or a dog treats company. And he needs $350,000 to build the production capacity to actually service demand. He has millions of dollars of demand that he cannot fulfill. And so he's like, I have to raise money. Now think about how much easier it is for him to raise money because it's a super tight story. If you have to like come up with things that you're going to spend the money on, like, oh, I could spend it on marketing and I could hire a team and I could do whatever. People are going to be like, I don't know that you need the money. 
right? Prove to me that you absolutely need this money in order to grow. This is a great question that I think a lot of entrepreneurs have. When do I raise outside capital? From who? Uh, again, I, Stephen is the one to answer this question. My instinct is the same on it. Like, do everything that you possibly can to the point where capital will actually solve major growth challenges that you have in the sense where it's the thing that's keeping you from growing. Everything else is locked in and you've done everything you can to get the business to a place where you're bursting at the seams. And then capital will be, I feel the same way about paid marketing, quite honestly. You know, I've seen and I've been in-house at businesses and been part of teams that have spent on paid marketing in order to manufacture demand and to manufacture growth versus it being a fuel to an existing fire, right? If you're needing paid marketing and you're relying on it to generate excitement about your business, that's artificial excitement. So if you can build an infrastructure where there is excitement and demand and activity around the business, and then you can just pour some of that paid marketing fuel to the fire, it's going to enhance the message and then it's going to be much more effective. Yeah. And you'll hear this from a lot of different entrepreneurs, but like the key to getting your business going in the beginning is operating in a very unscalable way. Right. And so like what you do now is not necessarily how it's going to work later on. You might need to sell to 100% contractor like trade show clients up front because you know where those people are you can go and physically or virtually and during covid uh talk to the people interact with them and get them excited about your product and then they start using it and then you use their positive reviews and photos of their projects to generate hype for other people and at that point you might be ready to actually go direct to consumer even if you do think that in the long run you want to be 80 percent plus direct to consumer not contract um, you may need contract early on to get there. And that's okay. Or contract just goes so well that you're like, screw it. I'm, I'm going to be a fully contract business. I'm building a really successful business this way. And going direct to consumer is really hard. And I don't, I don't you know, it, it seems to not be working for me. I don't, you can figure that out. But I think it's just figure out like, you don't need to solve for five years from now today. You need to solve for the next six months today. Yeah, no, I feel that every day because to want to keep pushing forward and grow the business and spend money and keep putting money into it, knowing that it's going to take a little bit more time before I actually get there and see the profit from it. Yeah. Well, can you tell us what the website is? Tell us where we can follow and support. Of course. Yeah. Uh, The website is field-tiles.com and you can follow us on Instagram at field underscore tiles. Thank you for coming on the show, man. Thank you guys very much for having me. Class dismissed. Best of luck, Alex. Thanks for coming on the show. If you are wondering how you could support this show, the best thing you can do is subscribe. Wherever you're listening to this podcast right now, hit the subscribe button so you'll be notified when we come out with a new episode.